For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Voice is the biggest political story of the year. If you want to understand the implications that this historic vote will have on our nation, you need to subscribe to The Spectator Australia. A digital subscription includes one month free and is just $16.99 thereafter. Vote yes to a Spectator Australia subscription, that is, at spectator.com.au forward slash join. G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia, a series of conversations on Australian politics and life. I'm Will Kingston. My guest today is Warren Mundine. Warren's CV runs into the pages of honours, awards and appointments, so I, I won't try and summarise all of them, but they are all richly deserved by a man who grew up in a poor Aboriginal family in the 1950s and rose to become the National President of the Australian Labor Party, an advisor to five Prime Ministers a successful businessman, and a tireless advocate for Indigenous Australians. Warren, welcome to Australiana. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Will. We will get to uh, The Voice, but before we do, I am fascinated by your career journey. You were a candidate for the Liberal Party in 2019. It's perhaps stating the bleeding obvious to say that you are less ideologically aligned to the Labor Party than you once were. (laughs) Has the left changed or have you changed? Uh, Look, you know, what Ronald Reagan said, you know, he was a member of the Democrats in the 1940s and 50s. Then in the 60s, he moved over to the Republicans and got elected governor of California. I couldn't imagine that today. But anyway, <laughs> he said that uh, famously said he didn't leave the Democrats, the Democrats left him. And I'm in a similar boat because I've always been a, a centre-right, been a, a strong advocate for liberal democracy and, you know, the free free enterprise, free speech, freedom of faith, you know, all the liberties and that, that come with that, that freedom. And uh, so I haven't changed. I don't think I've changed much at all. Yeah, so so it was very easy for me to fit into the uh, into the Liberal Party. I think I probably was feeling safe there for quite a few years. Does it upset you to see the way that the left side of politics, not just in Australia, but I would argue across the West, how it has changed since perhaps you entered public life? Oh, it's massively changed. You know, I first was interested politics when I was a young kid. Dad was a bit strange, you know, he after dinner he used to clean the table down and uh, my mum and dad would sit down with my older siblings, I'm number nine of eleven, and I used to sit down and listen to them debate and talk about the issues of the day. And that's how they 
how we were. We didn't have TV in them days. And uh, and so it was, uh, you know, it was a good learning process for me. I should have reported my parents to, to family and community services because by the age of six, I could have tell you how the voting system for the Senate was counted. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so at a very early age, I was very interested in politics. But as it's to your question, it has changed and has massively changed. You know, some of the things that we in the Labor Party and even in some of my soft left areas would never have come about in the Labor Party, what you're hearing and seeing today. It is across the world. You see in the United States and Britain and Canada and that. And also this identity politics, which is really taken over. The left was usually about working class, working people. You know, and in Australia, it was very a very strong Irish type Catholic left, and now the Catholic wouldn't even be seen within the Labor Party. I was reading a review of your autobiography this morning, actually, and it made a note of your. Let me get this right. Your heterodox indigeneity. I'll save some listeners the dictionary search I had to do. Basically said that you don't hold <laughs> views that <laughs> you don't hold views that many other Indigenous leaders hold. Do you agree with that? And and if so, why do you think that's the case? It is because I, as I was saying, from a very early age, my parents were very strong about you. You're either going to school or getting educated, and uh, or you or you're working, and or both. You're educated, you know, you're getting out of school, and uh, like after school, because we come from a very poor family. Uh, my brothers and I used to go down to the sawmills and collect the cutoffs and the castaways, and 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 go and and chips in it and then go and sell them to houses around the place for their fireplaces. And uh, also we used to go get the old sugar bag, the big sugar bag, and we'd go down and collect cow pats and horse droppings and that, and then put them in that bag and sell them to the, to the people in town uh, for, you know, for their gardens. And so, so that's how we got an extra little bit of money because my parents were very strict and, and, that, and they wanted us to be, part of, uh, uh, you know, they wanted us to go to Catholic schools and that. So we had to pay school fees and that's how we paid our school fees by doing those things. And so we've always had this thing about work and also taking responsibilities, you know, especially because uh, my great-grandfather was Irish and that's where my uh, Catholicism comes from. And that's how we were brought up. And so, you know, you never turned anyone away from the door. You always looked after them and you always were forgiving of people. Uh, you know, this is one of the things that has definitely gone out of modern society these days. You know, mm. this idea that you you could sin and, and, and have redemption is totally gone out of it. You know, they, they find some tweet of yours 15 years ago and then you get dragged through the street and fruit thrown at you and, and your mm. co- political career or, or business career is ruined. You know, that's just nonsense. You know, people can make mistakes in the past. They can move on and become good citizens and good people. So that's how I was brought up with that sort of attitude. Reflecting on what you've said, it's very obvious that the debate that we're having in Australia today, you know, is obviously very personal to you. And it leads me to a question which I've thought about when I've I've thought about Indigenous leaders who are opposing the voice, like you, like Jacinta Price. I imagine you want to be spending your time doing constructive things that are actually helping (laughs) Indigenous people. You've got to spend the best part of your year stopping something from happening, putting all of your time and energy into stopping something from happening. And if you're successful, then the status quo endures, at least for now. How do you feel about that? It is really tiring and frustrating, you know, uh, because, you know, I, I run several businesses and I, and I own some. 
and I and I'm involved in a couple of others plus some charities like one of the charities I do is the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation so since 2008 we've raised 140 million dollars to educate kids through to year 12 and we have a, something like a 95% success rate there uh, of graduations and we and then we help kids into universities and 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 postgraduate studies and we have a 90 I think it's 92% success rate in that area. But you know, if you if you put it in a, in a sense of a five five day working week, I'm probably spending four days on the voice and one day on the others. And it is uh, time consuming, and a lot takes up a lot of my uh, travel as well. But this is so vital for our democracy. As I said, I'm, I've always been a Liberal Democrat, a very proud Australian, very proud Aboriginal Australian. When we set up this country in 1901, it wasn't perfect. You know, some states in Australia mm. had Aboriginals were allowed to vote. In New South Wales, my, my grandparents, great-grandparents, I have records of them voting uh, back in, in the 1890s and, and 1901 after Federation. And in other places like Western Australia and Queensland, and that, they weren't allowed to vote. So it wasn't a perfect federation, but we worked hard at making it that perfect federation and we, and, and look up and, and that's what the 67 referendum was about it was about equality and and you look at i always challenge people and they say to me oh well you know aboriginals you know, under the constitution in the rough deal i said name me name me a right that aboriginals don't have i'm not saying it's a perfect world but name me a right that we don't have we have the right to go to public schools we have the right to be equal before the law we have the right to vote, we have the right to do things that we that we want to do. We can buy a home. We can do a whole wide range of things. Is it perfect? No, it's it's not a perfect. But we still got a struggle, especially in remote and regional Australia. You know, in the cities we're doing not doing too bad, but in remote and regional Australia, you know, we're we're dying of equal age to other Australians in the cities. But when you go out in the bush, it's forty eight. 50-year-olds, you know. Mm. So we've still got a hell of a lot of work to do there and and bring our brothers and sisters along on that journey. But uh, it's, you know, we've got the structures to fix it. Like how did we get the boat in 1960? All of us got the boat. You know, in New South Wales we had it, but all of us got the boat in 62. It was the Menzies government who, who forced it to happen. And how were they able to do that? Because we had the Westminster structures where the parliament can make those changes to the laws and that we could uh, lobby and talk to the parliament about getting a better deal. And that's what happened. They changed. Something I, I read when I was doing research for this interview, which I didn't know, is that in 12 New South Wales local courts, a version of circle sentencing is utilised in some instances. Do you think that there are some circumstances where different legal approaches for different cultural groups are appropriate? What, what's happening there, and this, is, this proves my point, if the magistrates and judges didn't, because we have a separation of power in this country, the legislative, the uh, judiciary and the executive, those executive and the judiciary were able to work out that, you know, the way we were doing things, there may be a twig or experiment that we can play with. What happens? You go to court. So Warren Mundine goes to court. He broke into someone's house. This is not a confession here. And he gets, and he, and, but I cannot go to that court system unless I, I'm found guilty, right? So I am guilty of the crime under the, under the, under, right. under our Westminster system. 
Yeah, so then it goes to a sentencing mechanism. And you know what the statistics found out? You know what the research found out? The Aboriginal sentencing system was tougher than the white man's <laughs> system. Where, mm. where the magistrate courts and people were saying, okay, you're getting six months in jail or you're, you're getting a bond or a warning, the, the Aboriginal courts were saying, no, you're going to jail. <laughs> you, you, you've made us shamed. You, you've broken our law. And... and, and and so it's quite so it's quite funny when you actually look at it. But it, and again, it can't happen unless we got this basic legal system to to allow that to happen. So so people forget that you know this idea of decolonising the uh, the our uh, governance system, you know, the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary is just madness. Our system, the British legal system, and that's where it come from, and which come out of coming out of uh, Roman and, and, and Greek philosophy and law built up over a thousand years uh, to come to this thing. It gives us us this flexibility that some other countries don't have, you know. And, and you know, like you, you look at the old Soviet Union, you look at even Russia today, and, and you look at the Chinese system and all, uh, you know, you're buggered before you even get to the courtroom. That's it. The, whatever mm. the commissar or whatever they want, they, they get. In our system, you know... The executive have been sometimes embarrassed because they've taken someone to court, and then they were found not guilty, mm. or, 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 or you know, or the law that the, the, he was charged under was not constitutional. Constitutional, and these happen in these. It's happened throughout our history. The British legal system, you know, we, you know, goes right back. You know, look at old King Charles I. He got his head chopped off. He was the executive because he broke the constitutional law. And so, so mm. could you imagine that in other parts of the world, we have these incredible things. But what people are missing is, is they're looking at the end result. Warren Mundine does his break and entering and that why is he doing that break and entering? That's when we've got to go back to the beginning. I wrote an article on, on uh, Mr Walker who was shot by the police officer at Ewan de Moo. And he, he, his life was a tragedy before he was born he, from conception. His, his mother was, uh, you know, uh, sexually abused, beaten, mistreated, and she was only about 14, 15 when she had him. Uh, and uh, she abandoned him in the hospital and he was passed around like a footballer through uh, families and friends and everything like that who sexually abused him and beat him and did horrible things to him. And, of course, that meant he grew up to be a horrible person. And, unfortunately, not his fault, but that's what happened to him. And so what we should be focusing is not the end result. It should be going, okay, why did we get to this stage? Why did Mr Walker get to this stage and go back and start working on those issues? How do we have that his, his mother was healthy and safe and grew up to be healthy and safe and to be educated and was not a teenage pregnancy that she grew up and she went to school and she got an, uh, got a job or went to university and something like that and, and met a bloke and, and they had a baby together and he was born healthy and, and strong as a baby and then was able to get educated and, and go on and get a job and that that's what we should be focusing on rather than the end result. Let's let's think about that. So so the argument you've put to me so far has been on principle. This is yeah. a violation of the, the principle of equality before the law. If, if I wanted to vote yes and I was to accept everything you've said and said to you in response, well, things are so desperate. You know, the example you've just given is a very good one. 
And I think a voice will lead to better outcomes and potentially that particular situation not happening in the future. Do you think this actually there is an argument to say that this will actually lead to better outcomes for Indigenous people? Oh, look, I reckon there is an argument and I respect people on the other side who have uh, different opinions to me on this because I, as much as I think I'm a very brainy, intelligent, good-looking bloke, <laughs> it's, it's other people don't think that I am. <laughs> so it's and, – and, and look, and also we've got to accept that sometimes we can be wrong, right? I, I, I'm always accepting of that, that I could be – in fact, every time I do a decision in my business, I always make sure there's someone in the room who disagrees with me and then I listen to their arguments and then we talk about it and then we come to a good – Hopefully, mm. a good decision. We don't we don't do it all the time, unfortunately. But we we should working towards. That's why I don't abuse my my opponents uh, because they're entitled to their views. I've worked with many of them over the years, and they're very good people. Uh, on this issue, we disagree, and and we disagree on the fundamentals of the of the concept. What we've got to do is stop treating people different. Stop treating people as, as, as not as, as human beings, that they're some sort of subset or something else. One of the most important, couple of important, most important things in my submission to the uh, uh, referendum parliamentary committee, yes, we are Aboriginal people, but that's our race. But we identify through our, our nation, our tribe of who we are, because under our culture, you cannot, sp- I cannot speak for someone else's country. If I'm not of their nation, of their tribe or clan, then I can't speak for that. I only can speak with my people on my thing. So Bunjalung can speak about Bunjalung country, uh, Gumbanka can speak about Gumbanka country, and, and Raja people can speak for only for Raja country. And this is where the voice cuts across all that cultural stuff. And this is one of the failings for the last 50 years is that we've got to recognise how people see themselves. And now they see themselves, most Aboriginal, I'm not saying all, most Aboriginals see themselves as Australians and see themselves as their clan, as their nation. And you see that when you see the people on social media and they have their name and then they have their country underneath. Mm. I call it the post uh, office hotel uh, because in <laughs> Redfern, in Sydney for many years, that's where Aboriginals used to drink. And we're all brothers and sisters and high fives and cuddles and kisses and that. But if a fight broke out, within minutes or in seconds, we'd all break into our clans. Even today. Yeah, even today. And so that's how we see ourselves. Because I'm a great believer you don't understand Aboriginal people unless you understand their kinship structure. Uh, Because that's how we operate. Like, for instance, my father's brothers are my father too. My mother's sisters are my mother's too. So when I walk around and like today I was on the phone talking to a couple of cousins of mine, we call each other uh, brothers uh, and we are brothers under our kinship structure. We're not mm. cousins. We're actually siblings and what we and we both have to act like siblings and this is how we operate as, as culturally. So that's one. That's, that's a, that one fundamental. Also, we've got to start focusing on, you know, Australians are very generous. We always look after someone who's fallen on hard times. And that's part of my Christianity as well. We always help people. But we always help them to get back on their feet and back to a job. So it's based on need. And that's what we've got to do. We've got to stop focusing on identity. Look at me. I don't need to go to the government and ask for funds to help me in my daily life or unemployment benefits. In fact, I've never had the unemployment benefits. And neither has my father. And 
some of my siblings in that. So because we worked, we worked. So I don't. So I, I don't need that help. But some of my cousins, they have been unemployed and they and they've struggled and they do need that help. So I don't need it. They need it. Mm. And so that's how we should be. And we know in rural and remote Australia, as well as in some of the suburbs of Sydney, white people are in just as much dire straits as what some Aboriginal people are. And so well, can, I, can I interrupt face, you there? What, yeah. Why do you think so many politicians treat Indigenous people as one just homogenous group? Because it's easy for them. Uh, you know, but I find it easy that they shouldn't because they're playing to the politics of, of the activists and the, uh, the and the elites. You know, why does, say, Professor, wow, look at that, she's a Professor of Law at New South Wales University. I'm not having an attack at her because I think that is, wow, wonderful because she got up and got educated and was able to go to university and then practice law and then go and then get to the high levels of being a Professor of Law at New South Wales University, which is one of our top law schools, I think that's fantastic. I think that's wonderful and I, and I congratulate her on those achievements. But does she need help? No, she doesn't need a voice. She's got a voice, <laughs> you know. Uh, so it, I just find that bizarre, you know. In fact, only a, a two weeks ago, Andrew Forrest found out Aboriginal people, even the ones who are uneducated, if you want to put it that way, living out in the bush who are traditional owners because... When you're, on that, when you're next to Aboriginal land when you're out in those areas, you've got to, you've got to negotiate. You've got to con- consult with the Aboriginal traditional mm. owners of that land uh, for things to happen on that land. And he mm-hmm. found out, one of the richest blokes in Australia, he found out they had a stronger voice than him because they stopped him mm-hmm. from irrigating a river. Mm. You know? We may disagree on the reason why, but that's a pretty strong voice stopping a multi-billionaire, <laughs> mm. you know. So this is why I, I think it's built on a fallacy, a falsehood, that uh, that Aboriginal people don't have a voice. And because uh, I see it every day, the voices of Aboriginal people who are out there doing things and that. Myself, you know, we're seeing Aboriginal people who are self-determining them, themselves. Look, look at the Aboriginal business sector, 2015, worth $6.2 million today. Only three weeks ago, it's worth $8.7 billion. It created 45,000 jobs for Aboriginals. 45,000 jobs. And it and 37% of those jobs are in rural and remote Australia. And so these are the way to, to go forward. Don't treat people all the same. Treat people on need and, 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 help, and help those people and... Don't treat Aboriginals as uh, this huge group of people who just one think like the Borg from Star Trek. You know, we all got the one mind, the one thing. Uh, you know, wandering around, uh, and and uh, that we are individuals, and we are. And look at the, the most successful people in this country. And I look and I, and I praise Professor Megan Davis, and I praise all my people who are on the other side of the the voice because they're all professors and doctors and that. Good on you, fellows. You have used your voice and you've got to the position that you are. Now it's time that we help the bush. And that. And the only way we can do that is through economic development, 5, 000, no, 500 years, I should say, of human development has shown us that the only way we can get ahead is to build safe communities that attract investments, have it, you get an educated, skilled people, 
and you get investments into those places where businesses which are profit, private, commercial businesses, which hire people jobs, and that's where you build the economic prosperity for those people. We need to change laws, you know, like the land rights in Aid Thailand, where you've got the bizarre situation we've got Aboriginals who can't own a house on that. Mm. And, you know, and the funniest one of all is some people who work in the mining industry, some Aboriginals who are on about $200,000 a year, can't buy a house on their own land. And so what happens? Me, you, and the taxpayer has to buy them a house. Total madness. <laughs> yeah, I want to probe you on that a bit further, but I need to get my plug for the Specky in. If you are enjoying Warren's insights into The Voice and into Indigenous Affairs, you need to grab a Spectator Australia subscription. Warren is an occasional contributor. Warren, I noticed an article of yours that was all the way back in 2015 said that an Indigenous body would be a third chamber of government, which puts race squarely back into the constitution. So listeners, no one can say Warren didn't warn you. He warned you in the in the Spectator Australia, no less. Digital subscriptions, $16.99 a month with one month free when you sign up. Go to spectator.com.au forward slash join. That is the second time I've heard that spiel around how do we actually make change happen for Indigenous Australians today because I read the article that you wrote, which you popped out on, uh, on the social channel today on how do we actually create real change. The enabler to all of that, to what you just mentioned in the article was, well, we need to get in Indigenous education standards up in remote communities and it is at the moment unacceptable. How do you do that? We have to uh, work, in, especially in remote areas where you're getting attendance under the 50% and we all mm. know that uh, if, you, if you're not at school, and this is what educationists tell us, I'm not an educationist, I'm not, I'm, I just fund education programs, mm. is that, that they, um, you know, if they're not at school more than 80%, then you're really wasting your time, unfortunately. And, and I, that's a bit cruel for me to say it like that, but that's what it really is. You know, if you, if you, if, so one of the questions when I was chair of the Prime Minister's Indigenous Advisory Council for Abbott and Turnbull was uh, we wanted to know, like, if there's 100 kids in this community, 50 turn up on Monday, 50 turn up on Tuesday, are they the same kids? Or are, are there are groups of kids that are not turning up Monday or Tuesday? And so how do we... And it's not a punishment program. It's about how we can then work with those families to assist in them... Uh, getting their kids educated. And we need to do that. We've got to get those kids there more than 80% of the time. We've got to get them to school. We've got to, uh, we've got to be, uh, and, and, and get them to be educated. Even if it's a bad school. Some people say, oh, but they're bad school. So even if it's a bad school, it's better than no school. And mm. we know that by research. <laughs> mm. A few questions specifically on the No campaign. What do you say to someone who is unsure of how to vote but they're worried about being labelled a racist if they vote no. The good news is, and this is one of our great structures, in fact, it was an Australian invention, which is the, uh, the, 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 uh, the secret ballot. It's created by us and we sold it around the world. I wish we sold it around the world. We would have been pretty rich. Your boss, your wife, your husband, politician, your football code or whatever cannot follow you into the polling booth. When you go into that polling booth, it's you and that pencil and that bit of paper, and you can vote whatever way you want to vote. Mm. And that's the beauty of the Westminster system we have in Australia. You are, you can be bullied outside the gate, you can be spat on, and you can be called horrible names. But once you get in that polling booth, no one knows how you voted. 
do you expect a gap between the polls and the end outcome for that reason? Yeah, we're seeing that already just recently, you know, and our, our polling similar to what the Yes campaign polling is, that, and you can see the panic in the Yes campaign because they're coming out and attacking us on all levels in the last couple of weeks because uh, because we're having we're having a cut through to the Australian community. And our poll is saying, you know, you get in the low 50s and it's and in some places it's even below 50%. It's in 47%. Now, to be at that, this stage of the campaign, for a referendum, I'm not talking about a, a normal election, but for a referendum, you're in, you're in trouble. Mm. Uh, you can have as mm. many singing and dancing koalas and football players kicking balls around and tennis players lacking tennis balls and saying vote yes, but the public is is starting to catch on to something here and, and the vote. In fact, I got a graph when it first was kicked off last year by the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister, when he first launched at Gama, was, uh, it was in the 80s. And you see the, the trajectory go like this. You know, the, the interesting thing is that uh, when you ask people about uh, do you want to recognise Aboriginal people in the Constitution, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the Constitution as first people, 90% of Australians like it. They think it's great. And, and that's one of the nicest things I've seen come out. So this idea that we're all a bunch of rednecks running around the bush is just nonsense. Mm. If, if you've been in this country five minutes or you've, or you've been here for several hundred years or 60,000 years, this is a great thing that we're seeing, this unity, this oneness. And this is one of the things that is working against the voice because a lot of people see this as a division and they're seeing a division already. And it's simple just to look at the insults that's been tossed at me. That's division. Jacinta uh, and, and other Aboriginal, uh, you know, football players and businessmen ring me up all the time saying, look, our company's decided this, our team's decided to do this, but I'm going to vote no, but I'm too scared to tell anyone. And I said, don't worry about it. You don't have to tell anyone. All you've got to do is, it's a secret ballot, go to that polling booth and vote the way you want to vote. But are you worried? You know, I, I spoke to someone the other day who works for a big four consulting firm. They've formally announced they're supporting the Yes campaign. They're even doing lunch and learn sessions to educate their employees. And by educate, that means effectively telling them to propaganda. vote yes. Yeah. It's propaganda. Are, are, you, con- are you concerned about that? Uh, no, uh, because they're, they're losing. They're propagandists. They're, they're no better than commissars in the Soviet Union, to be quite honest. if they They should be like Collingwood. Collingwood board said they're going to support the vote, vote right? The Yes campaign. But they told their staff they could vote any way they like. Mm. In fact, last Thursday they invited me to the club and I spoke to their staff about what I believe. Now, that's the proper way to do debates, right? And I was, and they took me to lunch afterwards and we had a great conversation about the boys. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to change their mind, but at least they had an opportunity to hear both sides. And that's all we want in a democracy is the people to hear both sides. So all these big corporations and KPMG I single out uh, because what I, I had personal experience with them. They come to me and said, oh, the CEO told us that we should get a different view as well. And then f- 48 hours later, they rung me back and said, oh, no, we decided to ignore that. So, so that to me is propaganda. 
there, if you're not listening to both sides and then making up the other... Look, so there are some people out there to listen to me and they'll listen to the Yes campaign and they'll vote yes. Well, that's their right because they listen to both sides. Good on them. But these people who are, who are trying to force their employees or their football players or their sports stars or their community members, forcing them to vote yes, they're just propagandists. That's all they are. A couple more questions before we wrap up, Warren. One which came out a lot in when I asked for questions on social media, and that was on the concept of a treaty. Some people may not know the difference between or may not know what a treaty is, may not know what the difference between a treaty and the voice is. What is a treaty? Where do you stand on a treaty or perhaps several treaties? What are, what are your thoughts on, on that topic? Yeah. I've looked at this area for 30, 40 years and looking at the Canada and uh, Funny, in Canada, they're called Aboriginals as well. In Canada and the United States and New Zealand, of course, which are jurisdictions with legal jurisdictions like ours, British law, and, uh, and similar governance, you know, the Americans are, uh, uh, you know, presidential style. It, it is interesting uh, how treaties are done. In, in the United States and Canada, and uh, they were two types of treaties. One was uh, going back to before independence or during the independence wars uh, or the Indian wars between Canada and the, uh, between the British and the French in Canada, they were more military agreements. So they went to the, the Aboriginals in Canada and they said, okay, we want your warriors to fight for us, whether it be the French or the British. And, and under their constitution, those, those treaties are recognised. There are other treaties within Canada that give real strong rights for the uh, Aboriginal bands, they call them, the uh, tribal councils, and and they, and they they've recognised under their constitution because it, it's a follow-on from that period of time. New Zealand's the same, and, and the United States the same. Except the United States has got they've got real strong stuff. So where where the uh, the say the Cherokee lands are, they'll have a couple of counties or one county within it. They'll actually have their own law courts and their own police and all that type of stuff, but they're still under the sovereignty of the United States. So they're, they're a lot different to the Canada and New Zealand and us. Uh, New Zealand, of course, they had the Waitangi Treaty, and that was after a long war, conclusion of that war, and uh, and that's morphed into what it is today. And, and it's a bit of a concern how it's morphed in the last 10 years under, under Jacinda Ardern's government and, and is having a huge backlash in, in New Zealand at the moment. And that's why she had to resign as Prime Minister. Mm. Like the Nationals will be getting back in power on that single issue. It's good for us to look at what's happening in New Zealand because it, there's a lot of, lot of problems there now. The other one is, of course, in Australia, we never had a treaty. And so, so from us, it's almost like starting from scratch if you're looking at it. I, I looked at all this stuff and then I'd come to the conclusion, I just like to have things completed. And so that is that uh, we have treaties with our traditional nations, which which ends all this argument about sovereignty, because the, the nations have agreed to sovereignty like the United States have. They, they, or we are these Cherokees or, or whatever, but we're still under the United States sovereignty. There's no question about it. And then, uh, then for us, is then moving forward into actually, okay, how do we deal with these social issues? Now, we can spend, and we have, billions of dollars a year on this issue. 
and we haven't resolved in some of these areas. So, so the issue, and, and I'll tell you now, we're never going to resolve it until they actually decide that they want it to be resolved. And I, and like me, I live in the suburbs here. I've got to look around and hope that my neighbour's not listening to this podcast because I'm going to say you know, it's one of my neighbours, and I won't tell her who he is, he's a bit of a dickhead. <laughs> but I don't, I don't go to his house and throw brick through his windows or kick his garbage bin over or pick, pull his flowers out of his garden because we want a safe community where people can get on, even if we still call each other dickheads. Uh, we still get on. The community is safe. Our kids are able to go to school and get a future for themselves. Our bins are, there's no rubbish all over the roads and, and crap that's about because we want a, a certain standard of living. Until people decide to do that and reach out for help and that we can help them, then you're never going to change anything. What will the outcome of the referendum be and what will the margin I, be? Uh, look, I, I reckon it's a no uh, at this stage, but, you know, I, I can't say it again because because we haven't got to, to June. And, and, and most people in Australia, it's like any election campaign, they won't be focusing until the date's been declared. And that's why you've got this big, like, we don't know what we're doing and we've got a very soft uh, yes at the moment. So that, that soft yes, you don't get that soft yet no at the moment. It's pretty hard, and so you look. So I reckon uh, we have a great opportunity to get more of those soft yeses and those people who don't know at this stage across the line. But we won't know until the date's really declared now, uh, because the legislation or the bill, I should say, won't become law until after June when it goes before Parliament. And the uh, and you they have it, then the Prime Minister after soon after that will announce the date for it. Then it will get hot, and the campaign's going to be running and. And it's all guns home from there. We're not going to be able to compete with that uh, because we haven't got the money that they have. But we're running a groundswell campaign. We're just talking to Australians, people on the ground, Australians. And you know, you, you know, we're some of these migrant. You know, when I talk about uh, immigrants and migrants being in the constitution, uh, the, the all the head bodies said, "Oh, Warren's an idiot." Well, guess what? I'm going to Moss. I'm going to Sikh temples. I'm going to uh, South Korean and Korean. I mean, I should say, and, and, and Cantonese, Chinese, and and Mandarin Chinese temples and Vietnamese temples. And guess what they're saying to me? They're, they're buying all my books and they're and they're loving me and giving me photos, things and that. So look, so we're going for we're, we're going for the for the Australian people and talk to them, and they can talk as much as they like to the elites up there. I don't care. That's that's their issue. They can spend millions of dollars as much as they like. Well, you know, I have great faith in the Australian public. They're not mugs. They're very good people. And uh, and they will vote the way they see is best for this country. And I, and I believe that will be a no. Well, as, as John Howard said, the electorate usually gets it right. Let's hope they get it right here. Warren, you've got a lot of talking ahead of you in the next four or five months. Thank you very much for taking the time to uh, chat to us on Australiana today. Thank you, Will. And uh, and, and and you can send, send a nice message to your boss that Warren thinks you did a good job. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.